safetyfm.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They are consultants that are trying to help you get to the safety culture that you're looking for. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for taking a listen. Thank you for being part of our lovely audience. I just want to say thank you for everything that you guys have done as a recent. You've really been taking a listen to the podcast and we do appreciate it. And you have been interacting with us on social media which is always a pleasure in regards of seeing some of the interactions that go on there. So not to make a long story, not to make it very short, just want to reference real quick today, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Tim Ludwig, and he is actually on here today, and we are discussing his book, Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture, and what you can do about them. Take a listen to this particular podcast. It was one of those interesting ones just really a, a fluidity to the conversation, really enjoyed some of the detailed information that he did discuss throughout there. And we even go over the first chapter of his book. So take a listen here today on Safety FM. Hopefully you enjoy the episode and make sure you stay tuned towards the middle of the podcast because we got some big news coming out there. SafetyFM.com well good afternoon dr ludwig and i appreciate you actually showing up here onto safety fm how are you today i'm doing well jay thanks for having me i appreciate you coming on we normally start off rapid fire i know that you've been in the industry for quite a while and i'd like to just start off with simple questions i ask a lot of questions that we some of us have the answers to but i want to make sure that the audience becomes familiar with you and understands exactly your background in safety so let's start off with the most important question i like to ask people what caused you to want to get involved with safety oh boy well, I got uh, my doctorate under the tutelage of uh, E. Scott Geller at Virginia Tech. And quite honestly, at the time uh, when I was doing research with them, we targeted uh, pizza livers for their uh, driving safety. And uh, to be honest with you, at the time, I was really just using that as an applied laboratory. I was more interested in, in uh, quality of work. And uh, so that's what I thought I was going to go into. And in fact, I did go into it. Uh, for a while after I got done with my doctorate, I worked with uh, the Department of Energy, the, the new production reactor, the new generation of tritium bomb, kind of like the Manhattan Project for the modern age. So it got quite heady really quick. <laughs> and uh, I kept on that for about uh, six, eight years, working with the Department of Energy, Department of uh, Defense, uh, Department of Navy, and stuff like that. But my research in the safety world kept uh, calling me, you know, it, you know, I kept uh, doing research uh, with Dr. Geller and on my own, uh, build that repertoire of research out there, and, and then I started getting asked to speak at conferences and the like, and uh, I tell you, something about the safety world, once you start, once you start interacting with the people out there that are really, you know, dedicating their careers to keeping each other uh, safe and, and away from harm, uh, that gets uh, quite addictive. So my, mine was a mine was a bit of a slow grasp over time, but uh, as soon as I caught the bug, I, I went all in for safety. 
Oh, so when you did your first study then, when you were referencing that, you said you referenced the, the pizza delivery business. Now, I remember there was a company, and I won't mention them by name, that had the 30-minute guarantee. Well, so that was the research that was done. We were working with them while they had it. In fact, uh, Dr. Geller's team was consulting with this particular company, uh, and it's a big influence, uh, along with uh, our research, to, to get them to drop that, uh, that marketing ploy. Uh, fact it was, they, they uh, only took like 11 minutes to make a pizza, uh, the rest of the 20, the problem was that uh, if the deliverer didn't get, get there on time, it's usually the, the kitchen's fault, uh, but they're the ones that lost money in the deal because they had a, they had a disincentive, they got, they got penalized. Then of course, when you, when you <laughs> finally get your pizza and it's free, um, you know, the college students you're delivering to are less likely to give a tip. So uh, obviously it influenced uh, a, a whole degree of uh, at-risk driving behaviors. So we did about, uh, in the end, we did 10 years of, uh, of data collection and a number of different projects with these pizza deliverers, uh, not only with that one company, but uh, many companies in many different states. And uh, it was the basis of my first book, <laughs> which I think probably five people read. It was a very accurate <laughs> book. But if you're interested in uh, uh, you know, some interventions for occupational driving, uh, it certainly has some empirical uh, studies in there, maybe of interest. And what was the name of that book in particular, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, the name of the book was uh, Intervening to Improve the Safety of Occupational Driving. It was uh, published by Hallworth, and I'm not really sure it's still in print, but uh, maybe a couple of books are bouncing around out there in, uh, in the Internet land. Okay. And, so, and I, I, certainly I, people can contact me at this point, and uh, I, can, I can get them in contact with it. And they would go to your website at safety-docs.com to be able to contact you, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Link right there. I just want to make sure. So you have mentioned Dr. Geller a couple of times right there. My next question for you would be, who has been your major influence for safety in, within your career? Yeah, absolutely. It has to be, uh, has to be Scott. Uh, we met each other some 35 years ago. Um, he was beginning his uh, um, major career out in the safety industry. And, you know, until that point, he'd been doing uh, safety belt research, bucky buckle stuff with the state, and uh, just all kinds of uh, uh, flash for life cards, and really built a, a body of evidence uh, for his techniques. And uh, by the time uh, I got engaged with him, uh, he was starting to gain a lot of entry uh, into the safety world with uh, you know, Ford Motor Company and a couple, a couple other major companies, which uh, funded our research. And uh, then eventually uh, became kind of an industry of, of behavior-based safety out there along with a number of colleagues we were working with at the same time uh, building the, the basis of uh, research behind that methodology and so uh, yeah without question it would have to be Scott Geller. Yeah, Dr. Geller was actually on a, a couple episodes back and he was talking about how it all went through with the Ford Motor Company and how they were talking about doing a safety belt and not a seat belt and how the, they pushed the organization on actually coming indoors and let's have these conversations. His story is very interesting on how that all came about. And if I remember correctly, he had told me that it started back all the way in 1979 with the Ford Motor Company. That's true. I started working with him in 86. So at that point, we had uh, grants to, to test out uh, whether or not a, uh, let's say a, a buzzer or a light or both when you don't have your safety belt on is more impactful and getting getting the belt on. And so we had a number of studies uh, following up from that. 
So in other words, you're saying that we that we can blame you and Mr. and Dr. Keller for the beeping sound when you get inside of the car. Actually, found out that we don't need the beeping sound. We don't have to keep it on. So um, we're we're the ones that tried to get it out of your life. <laughs> Got it. Talking about that, I know that behavior-based safety is a very strong suit. We're talking to Dr. Geller, and there has been a lot of conversation in regards lately of human organizational performance. What do you feel the difference is between the two, and if, do you can you consider one better than the other? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's been disconcerting in the last couple of years as HOP, uh, human organizational performance, has uh, has gained uh, relevance and uh, and. Um, and practice, um, you know, behavior-based safety is based on our science, behavioral science. I'm a psychologist, Dr. Geller's a psychologist. Uh, those of us who created it are from uh, area of psychology called behavior analysis. And as we just discussed, uh, we had uh, decades of uh, research, uh, lab research, what we call efficacy research out in the field with certain companies like Ford Motor Company, these pizza companies and the like, you know, uh, designing the basis of what became the market for uh, behavior-based safety. Um, and it had, a, it had a really strong beginning, a good run. Anything that lasts for decades is certainly uh, a product. We have, we have evidence of its success that we published uh, over the years in my research, Dr. Geller's research, uh, Dominic Cooper's research, Terry McSween, et cetera, et cetera. I got a, I got a list of about 100, uh, 100 uh, different uh, research uh, papers uh, on the topic. Uh, and then over the years, as anything happens, uh, uh, people uh, think it's a fairly simple process, and so they just start marketing it on themselves. And because folks who really didn't understand the science got involved, um, you know, it started getting watered down, and, and there was some bad implementation. And with that, uh, obviously, uh, the, um, the, the market grew, and then uh, it became, um, you know, in, in a good critical sense, uh, you know, question whether or not it's effective. So as a number of uh, folks started writing whether or not uh, BBS was effective or snake oil, <laughs> that kind of thing. And of course, they're citing the programs that don't work. And, you know, from a, from a basis of science and practice, you know, we want to go out and learn what works and what doesn't work. I work with a nonprofit called the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. And for the last decade, we've been accrediting the best in practice behavioral safety programs in the entire world. And so we have a we have a list of best practices of things that work and uh, things that tend not to work. And so when you start seeing programs that don't work, they're very easily lined up with some of the management practices and some of the design features that um, that are associated with the ones that don't work. So uh, because of this uh, watering down of the of the um, process, the uh, you know people start questioning behavior-based safety. And at the same time, uh, there's been some really good work, and I. I I think it comes out of a lot of the work in process safety as well, where we're trying to keep major incidents from happening, like explosions or fatalities. Um, you know, the off-sided data, as we've been getting better and better with uh, personal safety through processes like uh, BBS and other things, uh, we haven't really chipped down uh, the number of fatalities that happen every year, and certainly other process safety issues have been in the forefront with the Deepwater Horizon and. Uh, and other explosions and, and releases uh, in the chemical industry and, and falls and, and crane falls and stuff like that in the construction industry. So um, as, as we move forward, a number of uh, really uh, uh, some folks who coming from more of an engineering background started seeing some of the systemic uh, factors that go into 
uh, the causes of these these incidents, especially the unplanned uh, incidents, are the ones that uh, kind of come out of nowhere and are pretty large. And they built a nice repertoire of different things to look at in an, in, a, in an organization system, like their management systems, their planning, uh, the equipment facilities, and the like, um, which uh, which offer a really good analysis of when incidents happen and uh, an, an excellent uh, process to try to predict where incidents may take place and mitigate those beforehand. What's been disconcerting over the last uh, couple of years is where it, the BBS and HOP have been kind of squared off against each other. Uh, in ASSE 2017, uh, Scott was in a debate where um, you know that was that was kind of the the market for the debate. They had this big this argument and it was one versus the other, uh, and it's disconcerting because uh, those of us from the uh, the science uh, see that the behaviors when you're when you're uh, doing a BBS program and it's being done right, you are identifying uh, at-risk behavior, sources of behavioral variance uh, as people do their tasks. Uh, and from uh, the behavioral perspective, as I try to describe in my book, we don't go blame the worker after. We recognize that the, um, the greatest percentage or the reason why people behave the way they do is caused by the system, the context that they're in. And so, you know, when we, when we have these at-risk behaviors identified in a BBS program, we look to system variables that put the worker in the position to take, the play, to take that risk to begin with, right? So instead of blaming the worker, we try to use the information that we've gleaned from the behavioral observations to identify the system variables, you know, the training, uh, the planning that went into it, uh, the processes that's laid out in the SOP, the equipment, tools, facilities that they're working in, supervision, you know, all those system variables that, that folks in HOP have done so good at delineating, right? So for, for those of us who, who have been doing this for a number of years, we see HOP and BBS as complementing each other in very strong ways, uh, as opposed to being opposing methods. And that's the interesting part, because when you start talking to people mostly out in the field, it's either one or the other for the most part. There's really not a lot of people that will sit here, just like as you said, that they complement each other. It's either, well, you have to do this one or you have to do that one. You can't have them both kind of coexist. And the issue that I run into is that when I hear that, it's in practice, as I go out into the field, I look at it and go, you have to have a little bit of both when it when it's all said and done. And I know that some people are calling it a, as the new point of view of safety. And I just think that we're looking for wording to, to put behind it. And, and I'm not 100 percent sure is why are we trying to change the name when at the end of the day, we're trying to really accomplish the same goal accomplish the same goal and, and we have expertise in both fields and those two fields coming together the engineering systems perspective and those of us who are behavioral engineers uh, we can really make a, a sound um, uh, technique uh, going into the future so yeah we got we got a new wave coming it's really exciting uh, but let's continue to build on the evidence-based research that we had in, in behavioral safety and add in uh, the very sober analytical thinking of uh, the HOP folks. Let me tie this question in then. Do you think it's possible taking both of those methods that you just referenced for a company to actually have a safety culture? Yeah, absolutely. When, when I'm sitting in presentations, uh, and hear people talk about safety culture, and then I look around the room, you see everybody nodding, 
but then after that nod you can see kind of a confused look in their face because you know when, when we say shared attitudes beliefs and values uh, assumptions of of these things and the like it, it just leaves people confused it's not actionable right everybody kind of gets it because we're all human and and we all have these feelings and we all named them and the like but when you say we need to change people's attitudes we need to change people's values uh it, it's it's unactionable and in fact we shouldn't be so uh, pompous as to think we can change somebody else's attitude it's it uh, you know that's done by god and their parents uh, you're not going to do that in the 8 hours you have them at work especially around their values and beliefs and these other major constructs you know <laughs> in psychology um i'm i'm trained to uh, deal with very uh, what we call them constructs with 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 names of things that don't really mean anything we call them constructs because we just constructed that name we we built it from nothing right just so we can study it and culture is a construct culture it doesn't really exist in any formal concrete sense it's just it's something that we know is there and so when people are talking about safety culture typically when we get around to this idea of changing people's values and beliefs i, I think it's almost insulting to the worker i mean can't we just say that everybody who comes to work values safety I mean it's insulting to say somebody doesn't value safety, right? So so I tend to lean toward a more operational view of what culture is. And let me just try this out on you, Jay. Um and and it's it's been pretty widely accepted by the the groups I talk to. Safety culture is people talking to each other about safety. Period. Right? You can you can see people talk you can hear the product of their conversations you can measure talking we do it with our near miss reports and the like right and talking makes a difference you can have somebody next to you alert you when you're taking a risk and talking to you about a better way so so safety culture and talking is is pretty clear you can see when people are talking in your company and it's going against safety such as when a supervisor encourages a, a worker to take a risk to take a shortcut You can see when people talk in your company that doesn't help or hurt safety. It's like you know, we're just talking about the football game over the weekend and just kind of chatting socially. And you can see when people talk in a way that increases the safety of themselves and others, like asking questions, giving uh, direction, coaching each other, or you know, doing the feedback portion after a behavioral safety observation. So when you say safety culture. I think it's much better defined as something that we can see and do something about. It's a behavior. Talking's a behavior we can do something about. So taking this back around to your original question of uh can we combine uh, the tenets of behavioral safety and HOP to impact a safety culture, uh the answer is absolutely if we have a good definition of safety culture, right? If it's just values and beliefs and the like, I don't think so. but if we, if it's to get people to talk about safety i think we can in behavioral safety we have a conversation built into the process people do the observations peers do observations with other peers noting safe and at risk behaviors and afterwards they talk to each other they talk to each other about what was done safe and and give each other uh, praise they talk to each other about what was at risk and then they continue talking to try to solve the problem why did that why were we in a position to take this risk let's itemize the system variables that we can turn over to our employee teams they can talk they can talk to management and we can get something done from the HOP perspective right a lot of their processes are talking 
right? When you go out and do different audits or inspections or uh, look at specific tasks and, and go through the behaviors in that task, uh, that's all talking, right? And where I think behavior safety can really enhance HOP is the talking that, that is, is promoted at the worker level in behavioral safety, the peer-to-peer talking, the talking among an employee team, and the talking between employees and management that, that it encourages. All that talking gives HOP the basis to find out where the risks and hazards are so then they can do their analytic systems thinking. And, and the key point about uh, safety culture is that when, when that happens, when uh, I get coached, when I talk about what concerns me, it gets uh, worked with, with management, it gets analyzed, and my workplace gets safer, I see the connection between my talking and, uh, and the safer workplace. I see the connection between me talking with my peers and a, uh, more people coaching each other. And when that happens, I talk more. When I talk more, by definition, we strengthen our safety culture. And we'll be back right after this with Dr. Tim Ludwig, author of Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture and What to Do About Them, here on Safety FM. We are changing safety cultures. One broadcast and one podcast at a time. SafetyFM.com Many medicines used to treat colds and flu contain acetaminophen, a pain reliever and fever reducer found in hundreds of over-the-counter and prescription medicines. But taking too much or more than one medication containing acetaminophen per day can damage your liver. So always read the label and don't take acetaminophen if you drink three or more alcoholic drinks every day. To learn more, visit fda.gov slash otcpaininfo. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Food and Drug Administration. You have asked for it. Todd Conklin. Todd Conklin. It's coming. The interview with Todd Conklin from the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. On July 24th, be one of the first to hear the Todd Conklin interview here on Safety FM. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM. And we are back with Dr. Tim Ludwig. For more information on Dr. Ludwig, go to safety-docs.com. Dr. Ludwig, it sounds like you put a lot of thought into this. And I was about to jump on your book. I want to say, I think that this is what you've been, I think your book has some of this information in there. And the book, of course, is called Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture and What You Can Do About Them. So give us a little bit more information about that, if you don't mind, because I believe that some of the stuff that you mentioned, of course, is going to be in the book. When somebody's going to grab your book, and I will tell you, it has, a, has one of those covers that does stick out when you see it. When you look at it, what do you want people to gather the moment they grab that book? The book is in response to a lot of the press about behavioral safety being a process that blames the worker. And it's quite the opposite. In fact, if, if you had access to uh, behavior science and, and the paradigms behind what we study, 
you would see that it's completely the opposite. B.F. Skinner, our uh, our mentor in chief, if you will, and W. Edwards Deming, uh, the 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 linking of those two thinkers is what really built behavior-based safety. And if you look at both of their their writings, it's clear that we use our observations of behavior to try to understand where the system has let uh, the individual down. And uh, so I just want to give people access to our science in a way that's uh, accessible and fun to read, and, you know, with stories and the like. And so, you know, I wrote dysfunctional practices for that. <clears throat> the, uh, the crux of uh, what I was trying to get at is um, a lot of the behaviors in the culture, in the safety culture of many companies uh, actually can put workers in position to, to take risks and to be less safe and get injured. Remember, safety culture is people talking. So in this book, I, I analyze how a lot of people are talking to each other in our, you know, in our industries out there, how it in, ends up maybe putting pe- more people at risk, and then, of course, as the title suggests, what to do about it. it, it I think the first, the first uh, inkling I had, this was many years ago in one of my, my initial uh, consulting projects. There's a company uh, nearby, there's an auto manufacturing plant. They had like 400 different uh, plants worldwide. Uh, and, and some were really good, some were best in practice, and others were really struggling. Well, there's one here in the United States who's really struggling. And uh, we did a safety culture survey, and that survey suggested that they were the one of the worst in the company in their safety culture. And so they asked me to come out and, uh, you know, interview people and try to get under, you know, try to really figure out what's going on. So I was pleased to do so. So I get there, and I still remember it clearly. We were in a boardroom, right, and uh, the manager uh, it was a brand new manager. He'd only been there for six months because the other one got fired. They had so many injuries. The plant was a mess. There was so much oil mist coming off the machines. You, he said you couldn't even see the clock on the wall. So we were in this uh, we were in this boardroom with this manager. We had an employee team there. I can't really remember how they were picked. I asked it to be random, but they seemed to they could be really committed. And we had like another manager of maintenance there. And uh, I, I kid you not, uh, before I really got into introducing and things like that, the manager started you know. Uh, Tim, we've really got a problem here. I've been working my butt off trying to make this place safer. I've been spending tens of thousands of dollars on the equipment and machinery and uh, trying to make this place safer. And I've just been asking workers to do their part, you know, not to take risks, to to clean up after themselves. And and we're still having these injuries. And he kept complaining. And I remember this one redhead woman over on the side of the the boardroom standing up. And she says, what are you calling us, stupid? And and he literally said, little quote from Forrest Gump because it stupid is as stupid does oh my god and in that next moment I saw safety culture it wasn't the positive safety culture it was the negative safety culture where the talking I I saw was managers and employees just arguing with each other in ways that wasn't functional they were calling each other stupid they were they were using labels right and so you know the it it occurred to me, you know, this guy was calling everybody stupid. Well, you can't fix stupid. First of all, nobody's stupid, as it is. These are committed, competent people coming to work on both the worker and management side. So obviously it's just just an insult, right? But even if they were, what could you do to fix it? You You can't fix attitudes and beliefs and values and things like that, but you can fix behavior. So I, I kicked the uh, I kicked the manager out of the room, and about an hour and a half later, he came back, 
you know, I was, I was doing some uh, interviews with the employees, so I really wanted to kind of get their their clear, uh, honest opinion about everything. When he came back, his face was ashen. I mean, it was he was like scared, and, and he sat down. and And it was actually the woman who kind of said, are, "Hey, you know, Joe, are you all right?" And he goes, "I got to tell you a story." He said that uh, he decided he wasn't going to go back to his office because he didn't want to get back into email land. You know, he wanted to keep his head in the game. He wanted to really try to solve this problem. So he decided to go out into the plant and try to learn what the workers were talking about when they were telling them all the stuff that they were concerned about. And he said, well, I'm a manager, so I don't need, you know, I, I don't know how to work, work these machines. So I figured, you know, even a manager can change a light bulb. So he decided to go around and change some of the light bulbs that were out. And he found himself on the top rung of a stepladder with his office shoes on, standing on one foot with his other leg kind of strapped around uh, some piping, trying to reach up and, and change a, a light bulb. And he kicked out the stepladder and caught himself and, and nearly fell like six feet. Oh, wow. And then, you know, shimmied down and he came back into a room. And of course, <laughs> the redhead steps up and he goes, what are you stupid? And, and then of course, what did he say? He <laughs> said, yep, I was stupid. And welcome, you know, welcome, I, welcome to dysfunctional practices, right? <laughs> welcome to dysfunctional practices. And then I looked around the room like everybody's kind of a little happier, but nothing was solved, right? Because he accepted the label. And, and what are you going to do, fix stupid? Well, no, no, because anybody else in that situation would have found themselves at risk. So we take the opportunity there to find a better way, right? To find a better way, understand how he found himself on top of that stepladder to begin with. And so we, we went through that process and found out that uh, the six-foot ladders were uh, about a seven to ten-minute walk to the loading dock. So you're asking somebody who wants to change light bulbs to, to walk all the way there and then take a six-foot ladder all the way through all the oily machinery to set it up just to change the light bulb. <laughs> and uh, then we asked, well, what about the stepladder? Well, the stepladder was sitting over by this closet. He had put some closets in to put uh, cleaning equipment to clean up the oil, and evidently stepladders are sitting there too, so he just took the available tool. So then we see the cause of the behavior, right? You have the available stepladder where he can get the job done immediately while taking a risk, or he could take a 15-minute walk and put himself in exposure to more risk to get this uh, six-foot ladder. So instead of calling anybody stupid, in that meeting we decided, hey, we need to get six-foot ladders throughout the throughout the warehouse, and of course the maintenance guy was quite happy with that. And then then uh, it, it teaches you how it's hard to to really get this through to people because then the the manager says, uh, well, wait a second, you know those those closets that I found the step ladder in, those have uh, those have the cleaning equipment in it, you know it has the mops and and uh, and the buckets and things like that, and I bought those for you for you guys to uh, to clean up. You guys are lazy, so. Even after that experience, he throws out another label. And, of course, the redhead woman, now smartest person in the room, just says, well, sir, uh, we do. We clean up. We, we use the mop. We clean up the oil. And uh, when we put the mop in the bucket and wring it out, we end up with oily water. And so the next person that comes along is just spreading out the oil. And the manager says, well, duh, why don't you put clean water in? And so she says, uh, well, sir, where do you think the, uh, the plumbing is? And guess what? It was out by the, the loading dock. So you're asking people to take oily water all the way through and back. Um, and it, that, that really impressed me, that, that, uh, that event in, in my career. And it, in fact, that's the basis of the first chapter. I just told you the story in the first chapter there. Uh, and it goes from there. When they were labeling each other, 
And labeling's a human tendency. It's, it's something that we do automatically. It's a shortcut. It's our system one brain. First thing we do is label somebody. It's not the analytical side of the brain that, that we finally had to get to when we finally got all the catharsis out. Uh, but it, that, that's when I saw it. And over the course of my career, when I talk to people privately or you end up in these kind of lemon squeeze meetings, that's what comes out. The simple dysfunctional practice of labeling each other, uh, thinking that's the root cause. I called you stupid. You know, you got hurt. Right, and then we do an evaluation of it. Uh, incident investigations are very popular, especially in HOP. Right, uh, a major part of of HOP processes, and, and something has been going on for a good two decades, is incident investigations, and we've gotten really good at those. But I've been around the world. One of the bigger uh, mining companies in the world. I've I've toured many of their plants worldwide, and they had one of the best incident investigation processes I've seen outside of the oil and gas industry. And, you know, like anybody had a minor incident all the way to a major incident could get on their computer process and just start typing stuff in and having uh, um, you know, access to doing this fairly easy in their break room. And, and from the employee standpoint, it wasn't a very cumbersome kind of form to fill out. So they were getting a lot of, a lot of incident investigations and near miss or close call investigations and even, you know, things like first aid and stuff. So they had a big database on, on these things, which is very valuable for a company because you get the, uh, you get, you get visibility into what has happened and what could happen. And it gives you an opportunity like you would in behavior-based safety as well to try to mitigate the problem before it becomes an injury. Then I started looking at the pull downs and uh, after you put down the incident, you had to write up a cause. You had to like address a cause for the incident that, that uh, happened. There's a pull-down menu, and it had about 10 things on it. But the first one, the first one on those 10 things was human error. And you can translate that as <laughs> stupid, right? And so I asked to look at the data from the one plant. 82% of the incidents were labeled human error. And I've seen that time and time again people have really good thought through hop certified incident investigations but they leave in that label and you know it, it could be human error it could be personal choice uh, anything that points as a person as the locus of the incident um, ends up stopping the process like you know you can't fix stupid so if we put human error, you go to the person and go, okay, the incident happened, human error, do you agree? Yep, I was stupid, sign here, okay, you're stupid, good, got it. And then what do you do after that? What do you do with it? What do you coach the person? So they coach the person, but they go back to the same situation they were in, the same system they were in, and the, uh, that system is what caused the risk. You didn't change anything meaningful when you just label or use human error. And I think that's, that's one thing we can teach teach HOP to take out that ingredient of, uh, of blaming the person. And I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. So when you turn around with something like that, when you do the corrective action or the plan, what do you turn around and say, we've done, we have maneuvered to say this person's no longer stupid. I mean, I don't understand how they're able to use that concept. <laughs> well, think of the story I just told, right? right. Uh, the guy ran into the same issue three times there. I mean, he came out, went in, came out of the room saying the same, essentially the exact same thing. And we would have figured after the first time, the reaction from his, his team or employees, depending on how you want to deem it, he should have known right there. You shouldn't come back with, with the way that you're thinking. The employees figure it out first, Jay, I'm telling you. That's a strong thing about safety cultures. They are on the ground. They know where risks are being taken. They know where the hazards are. They know the variance in, in their fellow workforce. 
they are very clear as to the system factors that cause them, put them in a position to take a risk. Right? Uh, it doesn't exonerate anybody from personal responsibility, but, but they're the ones that get it first, I guarantee you. Um, you know, in my book, I, I talk about uh, labels keeping us from learning and, and the fact that labels are an illusion. Uh, and I, I alluded to this a minute ago. Our brains are, are hardwired to make quick assumptions about the world around us. You know, there's, there is, uh, let's see, something like 418 exabits of data that comes into our brain in, in any given moment, right? And our brain can only process less than 0.05% of that. And so you know, most of what we see, most of what we hear, it's really our brain kind of creating the illusion of the world around us based on limited information that it can process. So it takes a lot of stuff that's learned in the past and, and, uh, and, and kind of gives us our, our perception of the world around us, right? And so along with that, especially as we, we uh, interact with the world around us, and especially as we act, react to other people, we have to get the gist of it first and act on that gist. If the gist is important, then the analytical side of our brain, we call it system two, it's sometimes called fast brain, slow brain, it's, it's a pretty popular kind of thing these days, then we get to the analytical part, right? But this, but this illusion is so strong, we think it's reality. So when we see somebody uh, doing uh, something at risk, right, our first inclination is, first of all, to blame them for doing it and then try to explain it by some person aspect of them, like, you know, like you're lazy or you're stupid or et cetera, et cetera. And the unfortunate part is we got ourselves so convinced that that is a conclusion that's valid that we just stop there. But again, if we stop there, we're not solving the problem. In the second chapter of the book, I, I talk about a supervisor who was uh, taking a risk and he blew a casing off a, off a hose in a, in a fracking operation and took out the back of the cab of a truck. You know, he wasn't hurt, uh, but I had, a, uh, had an HSC professional ask me, well, well, what do you think of this? And I started asking questions. He goes, no, no, that's not the problem. The problem was that this same supervisor three years later was teaching a new employee, they called him Green Hats, to take the same shortcut while breaking down a fracking operation. And the situation occurred again, the casing blew off, and, and this is a very rare occurrence. You know, they usually bleed all the, all the, all the uh, pressure out, and, but they were supposed to do like a double check at each casing, and he was teaching them to take a shortcut because we simply don't got time to do that with all these hoses. Wow. Casing blew, hit the, hit the, the big fracking motor, ricocheted, and, and the, the kid is now brain damaged. And so the HSE professional asked me, he goes, well, you know, how could you tell us not to blame that supervisor? You know, he's a, and believe me, the, the inclination on the front of my book is the, the least offensive word that was used in that setting. <laughs> and uh, I had to ask, I said, well, what happened after that? He said, well, we fired him. I said, no, what, what happened three years earlier when, it, when he first took a shortcut, blew the casing and damaged equipment? He goes, oh, that was a, that was a near miss. In fact, it was such an important one. We called it, uh, what do you call it, a hypo, a hypo, a high potential near miss. And I'm like, wow, and this is a big company, so they had a lot of resources. And he said, well, you know, they bring in engineers, they bring in experts, they bring in, you know, the HSE people, and of course the, the person involved is there, and, and, all the, and the CEO finds out about all this stuff. 
And I said, well, well that's, that's great. So what was the conclusion? What was the, you know, the, the root cause of this hypo near miss? And, and he said, well, human error. I said, really? Human error? I said, then what happened? He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, uh, we coached him. Well, how did that work out for you? You know, three years later, he's doing the same thing because the system that was in the, you know, put him in a position to take that risk. You know, the, the time, uh, the contract, the, the how long it took to do this, this piece of the operation, the, the request in the process that he was being asked to double check this stuff. And, you know, all that stuff was still there. It put him in a position to take the risk. So three years later, what was he doing? He was doing the same thing. Absolutely. And so uh, identifying him as stupid and making him sign on a line and then just coaching him. Deming called that uh, exhortation. You're just kind of begging him not to do it again. And uh, he probably thought he wasn't going to, but he went back to the same situation. And three years later, you know, a kid got hurt. And, and like, how many people did he teach to do this? And who taught him to do this? In this company, there's over 35,000 people doing fracking right now. How many of them are doing the same shortcut? Because when they had this hypo close call, they ended up labeling instead of getting to the root cause, a system cause that caused the person to be in the position to take the risk in the first place. And by eliminating the employee, it is not resolving the issue. That's the even the more amazing part about it. Now, before I, I want to make sure that I want to reference this real quick. So the first chapter of the book is available on your website. And, and where do you want them to actually pick up the book at? Do you want them to go to Lulu.com or would you prefer them to go to Amazon.com or just go straight from your website? They can go anywhere they want <laughs> or, or come to one of my talks and I'll sign the book for you. Okay. Uh, the first chapter is on uh, safetydoc.com. There's a little hyphen between safety and doc. Uh, and uh, the first chapter, you can read it. I got an audio version of it there if you'd rather listen to it uh, as well. If you go to Amazon, uh, you got all the different categories. You can get the book, uh, you can get the um, ebook uh, the version of it, uh, or you can get an audio version of it. I, got, I had somebody uh, read the entire book, uh, and you can get that in audio format as well. In talking about audio, I want to jump in here this real quick. Insights into your safety culture. This is your podcast. I'll tell you, I've listened to the four episodes that have been released so far, and and I love the format. I love how you how it's storytelling. I really appreciate on how you're doing it. Are you enjoying through the, enjoying the process so far or making it? Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's brand new. Uh, I've been blogging for the better part of a decade. Safety doc dot com has been around for a decade and I've been blogging and a lot of those blogs end up in uh, industrial safety and hygiene news as a column uh, and so basically it was just my website and this magazine column but you know I, I listen to podcasts all the time including yours and, uh, and astronomycast.com and all, <laughs> you know uh, reply all I'm just addicted to it. I mean you, you fly as much as I do this is a it's, it's a blessing uh, and um, I had people ask me if I if I had a podcast, and and so I figured, well, you know, these blogs out there, uh, people can read in their spare time. But a lot of safety professionals, Jay, as you well know, are traveling a lot. They're traveling from site to site. They're in their pickups. They're you know they're 
they're on the road a lot and they still want to stay up on the latest information and research and, and uh, they want to um, want to be able to do it uh, during this kind of windshield time uh, and so I had a couple of my, my good friends and clients say you know Tim if, if, you, if we had you know an audio version this would be wonderful well I've been I've been into podcasts for quite a while I said well you know why don't we just uh, why don't we take advantage of it so you know I've only been doing it uh, for about a month and a half now I've, I've got it's in its third episode I'm going to put my fourth episode out this next week and and uh, try to do it once a month. And uh, you know, folks want to uh, want to check it out. I'd appreciate it. Uh, we've gotten great feedback along the way. And uh, any any kind of things that people want me to talk about, I'd uh, love to hear it. So, and they can just go to your website in regards of what information, if there's something in particular that they want to hear. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a very interesting request. I was actually out at a particular location and I had one of the, uh, a vice president of operations come up to me and say, we enjoy your podcast. But is there a possible way of you doing it in a video format? And I looked at him and I was like, you deal mostly with vehicle operators. Why would you want me to do a video podcast? And plus, do you really want to see me sitting behind a desk in a microphone? I mean, I'm not going to show you anything special. Exactly. I mean, that's what I'd be. I'd be a, I'd be a talking head. Uh, with uh, actually my university, Appalachian State University, has a, I just got an email. They have like a. a studio which has like a green scheme screen or something like that so i guess i could put some cool images behind and put models and stuff like that and act like i'm a weatherman but uh, i yeah I, I think in terms of the podcast you're able to be driving or be on a plane with headphones uh um you know enjoying your dog in the backyard and still uh, be able to uh, you know to learn um i do have you know i have videos on, on safety doc i got videos of my talks and things like that and and that may if they want the longer story the more dynamic story i know a lot of my uh, my colleagues out there that, that do a lot of, of writing like i do uh, tend to put more of their talks online and the like um I have a neighbor who actually was a screenwriter in Hollywood, California, and he, he came and he contacted me the other day after reading the book. He goes, I want to turn this into like a video video series. And um, so in that case, instead of having uh, you know me behind a desk uh, being a talking head, maybe get some actors. And, and one guy's the manager coming in, calling everybody stupid, and we find some redhead jumping up and saying, what are you calling us, stupid, and all that kind of stuff. So maybe maybe some uh, videography of some of the stories that are in the book or that I tell in the blogs, but uh, I think the podcast is the way to go. Hey, I have to tell you, if they're giving you the option of actually trying to do this in a video format, it's something to look into. I will tell you, I have seen some of the worst safety videos in my whole life, I think, in the last couple of years in regards to production value, and they try to make them so dumb, and, and sorry to put it in that wording, but they try to make them so dumb that it's like you're not going to gather somebody's attention span in regards of them looking at it. You have to make it infotainment to some extent for some people, but if you make it one of these things where it's over the top, people are not going to pay attention. I sat through one recently where I was inside of a company and they were doing their drug and alcohol program for supervisors as they were they were doing the two-hour presentation format and the actors were acting like they were on the drug and I was like do you really think somebody would sit there and listen to this or even pay attention you're gonna lose them after the first couple of minutes at, but, a, at a regional uh, safety school and uh, colleagues from uh, a regional university were there uh, telling us that they had data that uh, putting safety videos in cartoon format was more impactful and they were showing she was showing some 
uh, some uh, mock-ups of some fall protection videos that they had. And I couldn't help but thinking, and, and the people around me, as we discussed, like, exactly what you said. It's just, it's interesting at first, but then after a while, it's just kind of, it's a little bit insulting. I have a similar story. I was actually working with a major transportation company, and they had one that was related to clay figures. And the clay figure got smashed. And I was like, how could you release this as a mass production and expect your people to move forward with this and expect it to be okay? I'm sorry that I'm going off on a tangent, but it just bothers me. Some of the, some of the quality. Oh, no, no. I mean, from our science, our science has something to say about this. You know, uh, in order to have a so these training videos, training in general, um, these are the the quality. It's the the whenever you do a antecedent based uh, intervention, like uh, anything that directs behavior but doesn't motivate it. So that'd be like training signs, SOPs etc right the most effective are the ones that not only direct the behavior but they they say what the context of the behavior is in and they also take talk about the consequences of it so in these videos and in and uh, training in general uh, people have to not only um you know, get directed, but they have to talk about the context. So, you know, when should you do the behavior? When shouldn't you do the behavior? Uh, what other choices you have? What what risk choices do you have? As well as the consequences of all of these, and then you got to give the people an opportunity to practice the safe behaviors as well. And I agree with you. I agree with you 100% because it's one of those things that if you make it boring and you don't make sure that they're actually something that's going to keep them engaged, you're wasting your time. <laughs> death by PowerPoint. Now it's death by computer-based training. Oh my God. I used that comment, that death by PowerPoint inside of a meeting that I was recently in, and I did not realize that they had another speaker speaking right after me. PowerPoint. I get asked a lot if if I have my training on computer-based training, and and it just makes me kind of want to vomit because the, uh, the impact of that is quite low to begin with. And secondly, it's so overused just to, to check OSHA boxes that uh, the people tune out. Absolutely. People tune out, especially if they have to do it on their own. They find ways around the around the algorithm. And, and I've seen that. I've definitely seen that in the past. Now, let me ask you this, this one quick question: What has been the the biggest surprise that you've seen in the last in your thirty year career? Has there been something that has stuck out where you went, "Wow, I never expected this to occur"? I'm a bit of a um, fiend when it comes to how it's made. You know, remember the old. Uh, the old TV show, how it's made, and they go in the plants and they, they say how toothpaste is put in the bottle and stuff like that. So I, so I always go out to the plant, no matter where I am. I always ask for a, always ask for a uh, a tour of the plant. And typically, I get a tour by you know, like a supervisor, or, or sometimes even the manager, right? And and so we go, and and I'm just completely fascinated with. Oh, the equipment and the process and and you know then I always ask the safety question like what kind of hazards are here what kind of what kind of things do we got to look out for and and you know I, I learned some pretty sophisticated ways energy you know physics and chemistry could can can hurt somebody uh, and then I ask the same question of the employees you know the, the folks doing the job 
really smart, caring managers, and then ask the same question of the employees. And I'm always surprised how different their answer is. Right? The the manager always well, I shouldn't say always. I don't want to overgeneralize, but the manager typically is going to describe to you the engineering aspects of what can hurt you. You know what what the vendor wrote in the SOPs when they bought the piece of equipment, right? And and probably you know some of the systemic stuff that uh, their safety professionals have been really working on, and and all that is absolutely true. But then when you start talking to the worker, the the kind of things that they start describing uh, are are kind of blind at that next level up, and and I think the thing that's really uh, really been you know impressed upon me, you know, this is somebody coming from outside. Who doesn't have expertise in the systems or the behaviors to keep people safe? You know what's going on there in the plant, and so I can kind of look at it from a neutral outside perspective. And because of that, you know, you, you start seeing this disconnect in the conversations that should be happening between the folks on the ground who are, are interacting with the hazards and taking risks in the, in the context of those hazards, and and frankly, more more abundantly choose safe behaviors in abundance of those actions being quite different than the, the standard operating procedure, JSA uh, approach of the managers. So, you know, it's been kind of like my life's quest to, to try to get the safety culture of talking to, to integrate uh, those two perspectives uh, to a point where we can do something about it before someone gets hurt. So what, from that point, what are your what do you think are the most common misconceptions that most CEOs and COOs have about safety? Well, again, you know, let's go into this saying everybody values safety, right? The and, and so you know, leaders and CEOs are, are understand the breadth of their their operation, and in the breadth of the operation, they understand where safety plays its role. When um, we had a great discussion at uh, ASSP now in the oh, yes. plenary, don't, don't forget uh, the P. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get the P right in the plenary debate, uh, which I liked a lot better than the year before, where they were pairing off BBS versus HOP. There was a, uh, I guess, an executive for um, HSE in his company uh, answering this question. I loved his answer to the question. You know, he says, give, give these leaders credit. You know, they, they understand uh, the workplace and that they need to keep their eye on safety. The difference between the uh, engaged leader and the, um, and the leader that will kind of throw up roadblocks to you is that the engaged leader sees safety as integral into the culture of excellence they're trying to build. And uh, they they showed a video from Alcoa, the the uh, CEO of Alcoa, uh, bluntly stating, you know, when I took over this company, we I knew that we had to have excellence in safety because once you get excellence in safety, you get excellence in all other parts of the company. So think about it: if you're successful in getting employees talking to other employees about safety, employees talking in teams about safety, employees talking to their managers about safety, managers talking to managers, etc., right? Not only have you got people talking about safety, you've also built the behavior of people talking to each other to improve stuff. And he said the engaged leaders, uh, the ones that see safety as a source of excellence, as opposed to safety as kind of a cost function that we have to manage to keep costs and workers' comp and stuff low, he said that's the big difference between the two. 
And, and I thoroughly agree. I thought that was very profound of him. Tell you, I was really impressed with the whole session overall and just some of the responses. And it seemed like there was finally a common bond. And that's what I really thoroughly enjoyed, I guess, when, when I walked away from the yeah, whole thing. That's true. That's true. Well, there's some personalities up on stage. <laughs> Absolutely. For more information about Dr. Ludwig's book, you can go to safety-docs.com and you can gather the, the podcast, the book. It's all right there. And of course, make sure that you subscribe to Insight into Your Safety Culture at Apple Podcasts and whatever you f- use as your favorite podcast catcher. Dr. Logway, I do it. I do it. Yeah, hey, we're building. We're building a community out here, and uh, the more of us that are, are talking about safety and sharing best practices and sharing ideas, the better. So, Jay, I appreciate what you're doing, and uh, all the other podcasters out there, folks writing books, the folks putting out blogs and the like. Uh, you know, uh, together uh, with uh, those uh, workers out there that really understand uh, where risks are being taken, where the hazards are and all the managers who have dedicated their career to keeping these workers safe. Uh, this is a community that we've got to keep building. So I appreciate your role in that as well, Jay. Oh, thank you. And thank you for your time, Dr. Ludwig. And My uh, pleasure. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Safety FM, changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time.